Burkett, it's a flea flicker. Back to Mills. Wide open is Moore. He's got it. Touchdown. Surveys the scene. Rolls left. Throws back. Wide open. Touchdown. Amendola. Mills looking deep for Amendola. He's got it. Another one. The Tennessee Titans are your number one seed. A first round bye and home field advantage. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast, talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. It's finally over this season. It seemed like a long one as the Texans lost their final game of the season against the Tennessee Titans, in a rather impressive second half by Davis Mills. But to try and talk this one and everything else that's going on with this team as the season concludes, Adam Wexler, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, thanks for having us. Well, it was a tale of two halves again, I suppose, this week, um, in reverse order, uh, as we've been accustomed to. What did you make of the second half of the way Mills kind of brought the team back? I wondered why they didn't do that more in the first half and why they didn't do it more during the first 17 weeks of the season, because I don't think they were facing a defense that was forcing them to do things a certain way. It just happened to be the way they did things most of this year, and I think that was one of their biggest offensive problems way way too inconsistent but again I don't think it was because of who they might have faced each week certainly not the Titans in this last game but more about the way they went about designing their game plan and I know they had some good first halves and few good second halves and this one was the opposite but it was pretty clear earlier in the year that running no huddle uh, running up tempo uh, running out of the shotgun at times all these things seemed to work and they just didn't do it enough and I don't know if they didn't feel like David Smills was ready or what the reasons were for it. They obviously couldn't run the ball in this game or in basically any game, but the, the Charger game. And they just were very hard-headed and determined to just keep trying to do it with players both in front on the line and the backs that they had. They just couldn't do it. So the second half was uh, just a kind of a repeat of other games this season. And Davis Mills uh, was easily no worse than the second best of the rookie quarterbacks this year. But a one-year analysis of these rookie quarterbacks isn't a huge deal. What do they look like after a second year or after a third year? Uh, that'll determine what their future really holds. Yeah, that's right. Because you kind of compare them to the to the draft class, but that's you know becomes redundant after they play their first snap, really, because they're up against you know the best of the best rather than uh, the rookie quarterbacks. We're not playing them every year. But when when you when you look at Mills and you. And when I've watched the tape back this morning, Adam, and you, you see even from a first half to second half progression, there's a time where he, he, he sort of checks his run, but then the second half he trusts himself a little bit more. He goes and he takes it smartly, slides down on one, on one of the scoring drives. And then the second half, he just started to find people deep. And I think what you've seen when you get a solid slot performance from whoever it's been, it's been a, a cast of three or four different guys, but Amendola has a big game and all of a sudden he starts to hit the ball deep in the whole game and the whole playbook seems to open up when they focus on the pass, as you said, going away from those inefficient runs. But what, what do you think of Mill's game, where it's where it started, where it's going, where do you think it's going to end up and uh, what sort of future do you think he's got in this league? Because it's hard to tell right now, but there's I mean, a second half, some flashes of greatness there. Yeah, well, well, the first thing does, I think, reflect on what they're doing offensively and the kind of uh, scheme and play calling that they're running through on any given game. They threw the ball on every single first down they had in the second half for the first 25 minutes. That puts the quarterback in a good position. What they did in the first half and what they've done with most of their play calling this year was just the opposite. You, you run on first down, now it's second and 11. Uh, you run on second down, now it's third and nine. You're in a defeatist position. You're putting your quarterback in a position to fail. And with the group they have around him, especially skill-wise, 
it's just not conducive to a strong quarterback play. And, and it was no different for Taylor. And it's been no different during other times in the Bill O'Brien, Tim Kelly offense that they've run. And uh, they just don't have the personnel to do the things that that offense is called for. And they never really adapted to it. Uh, but what Mills does is he does have an understanding of the Texans offense now. And I think this is what we got from him over the last couple of weeks and talking to him and talking to the OC, Tim Kelly. He knows the Texans offense. Finally, very, very well. So now I can focus on the other team. He can focus on their defense. What did they do? Uh, what is he seeing in film? And then what does he see at the snap? And now all of a sudden he has a better chance to go through his reads, know where the, uh, the rush is coming from, know where he should see open receivers. Instead of just snapping the ball, looking at his one guy, if he's not there, the play's dead. Uh, that's more of the first half David Mills this season uh, versus what we saw the second half. He knows the Texans offense a whole lot better. So uh, he's earned the right to not just be the guy to start the season next year. Next season should be all about him. They shouldn't be adding anybody to compete with him. They're fine if they had a veteran quarterback. But that quarterback should come in as the clear number two. And 100% of the offseason, 100% of camp reps, they should all go to Davis Mills because there is a real possibility that he develops into a, a good quarterback. Now, franchise quarterbacks, pretty elite status, and there'd be no reason to look at him and think that now. And I don't know that they would even think that after another good year. Well, that's it, yeah, because I think that the jump to the to that level, you know, there's probably five or six guys that you can, you know, you can trust to win you ball games. Um, there's a couple departing and a couple soon to depart in the league. But you, you wonder, you wonder with Mills, do you think that he's got he's got a ceiling whereby, and you, you said that you don't think they should bring somebody in to compete with them. Um, do you think it's just a case of bringing in a, a vet that's going to be able to teach him and lead him, and then you give him as much rope as he possibly can next season and see where he is? Because I think. Prior, probably to the Chargers game, I would have probably said that was a bit of a risk, considering some of the bad take. You know, because you've got to equalise the whole picture over the whole season. And you think back to the the, the trip to Buffalo, the trip to Indies, home performances have been good, but there's perhaps a concern he doesn't do it as well on the road as well. And there may be a myriad of reasons for that. But do you, do you think that would be a, perhaps a risk if they don't bring in somebody that can compete with them? I know there's a fine balance between him getting the reps and developing and finding out what you've got. But also, you've got to, you know, you've got to do what's best for the football team at the same time. I mean, I guess you do. I mean, the reality is you don't because winning six or seven or eight games when you're not really making actual progress, it doesn't matter. If he's making progress, that matters. If you bring in a mediocre veteran quarterback who has a very low ceiling and has spent the last five to 10 years in the league proving to every team he's been on and every team he plays against that he's not the guy. To me, that serves no purpose at all. I don't want to see it. I don't think the fans should want to see it. And I don't think the brass inside the building should want to see it. Uh, teams that do that, I think, don't have any idea what they're doing. It makes no sense. There's no way to get better by playing somebody who you already know about. Uh, that guy's not going to take you anywhere. And again, winning seven, eight, even nine games, which probably is not a playoff team, means you just made your draft position worse. And if this team's ever going to be good because of the way they're constructed, because of who they have at their disposal, they don't really have any free agency in the future. Free agency for the Texans doesn't exist. It exists in the form of what veteran players can't find a home elsewhere and which one of the guys, which of the guys that we've signed want to come back. They're not going to be in the market for any significant free agents unless they're overpaying to an unbelievable degree. And, and reality is whatever happens with the Watson situation, their cap probably is in a bad spot this year because Casario thought putting a bunch of dead money in the future made sense. I'm not sure where he came up with that theory, but that's what it looks like for at least 2022's cap, especially because of the Watson situation. So I don't see any purpose behind that. Just give Davis Mills the ball and give him all the rope you want. 
This year, they even limit. They they were so focused on limiting his mistakes. Uh, I want to see a quarterback make some mistakes so he can come back and overcome that, so he can learn from it, so he can get better from it, and he can win a game from it. I don't think a lot of uh, teams want to turn their quarterbacks into Brett Favre mistake makers. This guy's winning MVPs when he's leading the league in interceptions. This guy's playing at a high level when he makes three, four huge mistakes in a game because he doesn't care. He goes out and makes 10 great plays. No comparison being made, clearly. But the point is uh, they've got to let their quarterback play football and playing the underneath game all day and throwing everything short and three and outs and just giving your team no chance. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Saw too much of that this year. Yeah, no, that's right. I think it, and yeah, you you touched on it. They've talked about loads of times on here about the the dead money, and people seem to give Casario a free pass in some senses because he's kind of like the he's taken over from the bad situation. It can't get worse, so people almost don't like view it with a level a level eye, if you like. And then I think you, you're you know it's hard not to agree in terms of the point you make there on the on giving on the reps because ultimately you kind of look back on this season, I think Adam, and you think it was kind of wasted in many senses because you knew what all these vets were. Okay, there's been a couple to veer Thomas has been you know, good in spots, Cammy Grigier, hell, hopefully those two guys are back. Um, but beyond that, there's not been a huge amount, Malik Collins and so, and then a couple of guys have picked, you know, they've re-signed, but as you said, you knew what those guys were and what was the what was the downside when you only win four games versus an undrafted free agency um, that could have been tapped into and found, you know, you may have found gold, you may not have, but no, I think, I think it's... Uh, it's it's likely to be another season, as you said. There's the avenues in which they can add to free agency is not going to change much. Um, what did you think pre-game when the reports came out? I saw Aaron Wilson put it out really early. Um, then I saw some of the NFL Network guys put out after a couple of weeks of talking about Casario um, may you know run run it back out again with Cully and the coaching staff. There was a report they were set to reevaluate the entire football operation. Um, did that first? Did that come as a shock? And then what do you make of it subsequently? Nothing this team does comes as a shock because I don't think they really have much of a – they just aren't like every other NFL team, the way they've put their front office together and then the way they operate. Uh, there's really not a team in the league. I said this on my radio show yesterday. Uh, there's 32 teams in the league. There's only one that I can see that would hire a head coach, uh, give them five years under a totally new regime, and then reevaluate everything after he met expectations. If they had expectations of winning more than four games after watching what Nick Casario put together in the offseason – from a personnel standpoint, then they're delusional. You know, David Culley didn't coach this team into a disaster. He didn't have turmoil inside the building because of him. Any turmoil they had inside the building had nothing to do with him. He was actually the one trying to clean up the mess, whether it was the Watson mess, whether it was Zach Cunningham giving zero interest in playing for the Texans and going through the motions before Culley and the team finally said, get lost again, like usual, for nothing. Uh, their return on some of these players that they've seen walk away. Literally, they walked away. They didn't get anything for them, nothing for Watt, nothing for Cunningham. So, again, when coaches have been fired in a year or less, like Urban Meyer, like Coach Wilkes in, in Arizona, it was because something had happened or some things had happened inside their team that they felt like he was only going to make things worse by staying. You might not like what Coach Kelly does on game day, and I don't know how you could like it, but he hasn't done anything to get fired from a – creating the situation. He didn't do anything like this. So why'd you give him a five-year contract? Why'd you do any of this? If, he, if he's fired, it's all on them. And I'm sure they won't admit they made a mistake, but they will by finally making that uh, call. And the other thing is they don't care. They don't care what anybody on the outside thinks. So uh, I, I can't tell you what surprises me. doesn't surprise me. Uh, surprise me. What would be a surprise is if this team 
uh, did the things that made you think they had an idea about what it took to start turning this thing around, which they don't give any evidence of. Yeah, that's right. And do you think, um, and, and I suppose you said that the in-game operations not been good enough, you know, even, even some of the, the, the comments post-game again, he sort of puts his foot and saying, oh, you know, we maybe should have gone up tempo more. And, you know, I could have told you that. You think, no shit, you know, I think it was obvious that it was, that was, you know, that was an issue. I think there's a lack of recognition. I don't know what he does. And as you said, it's an unfair spot because his coaching staff have been effectively, you know, thrust upon him. I think the, the players, I don't know how much, you know, necessarily has in that. And I think he's, he's there for an overseer role. Do you sort of envisage a, a point where last season there was so much turmoil, nobody would touch the job, and that's how they kind of went. Leslie Fraser and him kind of got down to it, and this was perhaps maybe always in their thinking. And do you think? And I've often heard it phrases. Casero's maybe got you know a couple of guys that he would really want um, as head coach. Do you think they think one is available, and they're certainly just trying to feel that out through the media and through leaked reports? Um, and if so, do you, do you think they've got a guy in mind that you'd like to see, Brian Flores, and obviously Josh McDaniels keeps getting mentioned? I mean, that's a tough, tough question because of where this team is. Uh, it's virtually impossible for anybody like McDaniels or, or Flores specifically to look at this situation and say, yeah, that's what I want. That's where I want to go. I want to leave where I am if you're McDaniels and I want to go to the Texans. He'll get a huge pay raise and then he'll lose a bunch of football games and potentially end his head coaching career. He's already got two strikes against him and two pretty big ones. And we're talking about McDaniels. He was terrible in Denver as a head coach and not well-liked. And he didn't even give the chance to the Indianapolis people to hate him because he quit immediately. So they automatically hate him. Uh, and in Flores' situation, that's more of an indication of how Miami doesn't understand what they're doing. It's starting to make the Texans look not like they're on an island of stupidity and incompetence because there are other teams that, that match that. Uh, Jacksonville is one and Miami is certainly another. Uh, it really shouldn't care to the, be of much care to the Dolphins that Brian Flores uh, again, if it's true or not, who cares if he gets along with other people in the organization? If do, Are you trying to win football games or not? Uh, he can win football games. That team uh, was good because of the things that they were doing on the field. They haven't had back-to-back -back winning seasons or even two winning seasons from a head coach in 20 years until Flores got there. And this is what their decision is. Uh, try winning games with Ryan Fitzpatrick and a totally unprepared Tua. That's what they asked Brian Flores to do in his first two seasons. And he still managed to get that program turned around. It's a very good team, and now they're looking for a brand-new direction. And what their owner, uh, Stephen Ross, said yesterday, where he wasn't giving support to Tua, even though he probably thought he was, where he didn't really have much of an idea of where they're headed, and he kind of put it all on Flores, I think is ridiculous. And even having said all that, I don't think they have a guy in mind because I don't think either one of those two guys are going to end up here. Uh, McDaniels doesn't belong here because I don't think he should be a head coach anywhere. And there's no rush to go get him because I don't think 30 other teams are even looking at him. He'll be the Patriots' next head coach in five years, or he'll take the job here in Houston. But I honestly don't think the job in Houston is for him. And I think Flores, will, uh, whether or not he really likes the people he knows that works here in Houston, I honestly think he might have a better opportunity uh, elsewhere uh, with the current five other jobs that are open and possibly more. Yeah, because you can see the lines between Flores, right? Obviously, the New England connections, et cetera. But when you think... You departed from a coach who you saw, you know, everybody's frustrations, you know, for the for the whole nation and the whole world to see on the college playoff football last night. 
um, about the, the the frustrations of Bill O'Brien, but the, the, probably after he's you know his play calling and the, and his stubbornness with the scheme was the way in which he interacted with the way in which Power struggled, and and maybe wrong, but certainly Flores is painted as a kind of similar character to that in some sense. So then when you add that to the fact that Casario went in a complete opposite direction with Cully, wanting somebody who was going to you know d- you know be a good lieutenant if you like. And then he takes a very hands-on approach. It doesn't feel like Brian Flores from everything's come out with, with, uh, with the GM Greer there and with, and with the owner uh, Ross that that he's necessarily going to come and accept what effectively Casario is a rather overbearing role that he takes, um, you know, versus the traditional view of a GM. So it kind of feels like those fits maybe aren't necessarily there. Um, we may be wrong, but w- would you would you have a candidate in mind you'd like to see them go after? Honestly, no. I mean, there's a bunch of good head coaches, and I think there's probably 10 guys that would all make sense, but only if you get an understanding of what it is they do. I mean, are they going to change offenses in year two of Davis Mills? Should that even matter to them? Because if if they fire Coach Cully, I assume they're bringing in a coach who's going to be allowed to hire his own staff, which might mean they change everything. If they change the defense, then they probably have the wrong personnel for whatever the new defense is. If they change the offense, then they obviously have to have a young quarterback learn a brand new system. You know, I, I don't really think that's the best way to develop him. I don't think it stands in the way much of what your roster looks like, but you're also going to be interviewing candidates that I would think would be pretty clear on what they want. And I don't think David Cully stood in the way of any of that. All he wanted was, you want to give me the head coaching job and you want to pay me a bunch of money for five years? It. Yes, I'll take it. This opportunity is yeah. never going to come again. I don't. I can't think of one candidate that I think they would hire or interview even that isn't going to interview all over the league or would have already interviewed elsewhere and knows that they'll have better opportunities. So when they sit down for that interview, they should be telling the Texans, when this is my team, this is what I want. I want to hire my staff. I want to be the guy in charge. I want the power of the head coach. Quite frankly, there's no evidence that David Culley has the power of the head coach. He literally runs practice, I guess, and runs the team on Sunday for the most part when he's not listening on the headset. He doesn't impact the offensive play calling. He doesn't impact the defensive play calling. The other guys that the Texans put in place for him, and he was involved, but this really isn't his coaching staff. That's what's going to change. So a number of different candidates I think might be turned off if they can't at least get that. That's normal. That's what a head coach should demand and be given. They don't need the power of personnel. They don't need the power of the general manager's gig, but they need the power to be the guy in charge of the football team. And I don't think Casario is quite as overbearing as some of the media has portrayed that he goes out to practice every day and is throwing passes and calling plays because that's not reality. That's not really what happens, but he is more involved than most head coaches would want them to be. And I kind of feel like Lovey Smith has already made that. I don't think he made it known, but we talked to him and and at one time it kind of felt like he was saying it without saying it. If, If he were there, he would be, uh, pretty dissatisfied with listening to his general manager on the headset uh, on game day. Again, he did not say that. And so I'm definitely taking it a little further than anything he might've said, but I don't know why any coach wouldn't think that other than coach Cully, who just kind of went through it all. Yeah. It seems kind of odd, doesn't it? And the fact that may go on in other places, but I think people would just be a bit more savvy not to maybe sort of front that up to the media and, and put that out there in the public domain. It doesn't seem like, that bears any benefit for them to do that. How much of the changes, or the or the or the what what the stimulus perhaps was for some of the changes? Because if you see, it's a very empty press box. We've seen that it's a very empty stadium. I'm sure you've seen that every week now um, for all the nine home games, the extra home game they had. Um, 
they're they're offering discounted season tickets. Um, they're they're trying to fan appreciation week, trying to really kind of re-engage people. At the same time, you've seen a very public sort of fronting of of uh, DeAndre Johnson coming back and home field advantage captain in the in the box with the ownership last week. How much of you think? Perhaps after some of his comments about Jack Easterby and the impact there and him sitting, spending time with ownership, and he and it kind of got lost in the wash a little bit on Saturday, just with everything that was going on. But he did actually say to the media before the game that we had a discussion about how to make the team better and get it back to where it needs to be. Um, how much of do you think the sort of external pressures um, are maybe realising, or Cal's perhaps realising in some way or another that actually the internal structure may not be there right, whether that's coaching staff or front office, and do you think they're starting to feel the pressure after a full year of it, plus DeAndre Johnson, plus all these layers that kind of piling on them? Not this new, but do you think it maybe is now making an impact? Yeah, two things on that. The only reason Andre Johnson said that to the media on Sunday morning before the game was because I asked him about it. That was my question to him because I wanted to hear his point of view on how things were where they were one year ago in January when he said what he said on social media to where they are today, where he's sitting in the owner's box and where he's obviously being honored at this game. And I figured his answer would be what it was. And and that's what he said, that, you know, you have disagreements when you're a family and and you move on. Uh, Some people don't really want to buy into the fact that he really truly feels that way. And maybe this is just something he feels like he needs to do uh, from a Hall of Fame standpoint. I, I think what he said is true. I tend to believe that Andre is not going to, you know, pull any punches when it comes to that. He also is not really here for the drama. Um, but you're, the second thing that you're talking about is, is do they realize, you know, that the, the external pressure, so to speak, until Cal McNair does anything that indicates that matters to him. And, and it, it doesn't have to. If you're the owner, you can do as you please. But I don't think they feel any external pressures uh, to do anything. I don't think he is really all that broken up about uh, an empty stadium in that he won't continue to believe in the people that he's hired erroneously or not. He obviously believes in whatever Jack Easterby tells him. He obviously believes in whatever Nick Casario tells him because those two people have basically been able to do whatever they want in order to direct this franchise. And as it turns out five years from now, maybe they have a full stadium again and and maybe the plan has worked and maybe whatever that is. And maybe they do have some talent on this team. And I think he's willing to just sit back and say, well, whatever I have to go through to get there, it's of no concern to mine. I don't even really know that he feels like they're actually going through anything. But yeah, the, the fans are very turned off by this. It's evidenced by what goes on inside the stadium. You just, you know, this is something I, I can't imagine any other NFL city feels in that you go, you walk into a game and then you, you know, you scan the crowd and there's jerseys in the crowd, but they're either for somebody on the other team, uh, some other team that isn't even playing that day, <laughs> or from players that don't play for your team anymore. Because there's no jerseys of any players that play on this team in the stands. Because there's no players on this team uh, that there's any connection to for this city. And again, until the ownership makes decisions that seem to indicate uh, they have an idea of how to get the fans back, how to get people on board with what they're doing, I, I don't have any reason to believe that will change. Like I said, I really don't think it's something that bothers the ownership of this team on a daily basis what this city thinks of what they're doing. I also think he doesn't care about money. I think he thinks it's firewood because he burns so much of it uh, with the decisions he lets his front office make. It just doesn't seem to be any concern at all. 
Well, that's it. Yeah, I think it's only just this year he stopped paying Rick Smith. So, uh, so you know, there's still, as you said, the cash outlay or the cash budget of the team certainly continues to be misplaced, I think, and, you know, mismanaged at best. Um, but in, in terms of this this off-season, Adam, where do you see where do you see the improvements they need to make? And, and would, you, would you start with changing coaching staff or do you just believe that to be a misnomer at this stage? I mean, I'm okay with changing what they're doing offensively, quite honestly, uh, unless there is somebody and you can't really go out on the interview circuit and find out more about some of these head coaches and sit down with them unless you fire Coach Cully. But it makes no difference to me if Coach Cully returns for year two or they wait another year to do it. I mean, he's clearly not the long-term answer unless you think he has the best learning curve of any head coach in the history of football. Uh, The amount of things that they should have known he would have trouble with and the fact that he's just never been there before – Unless they think all that's going to change after 17 games next year, he's going to come back and have an idea of this, an idea of that, because he just hasn't seen it. He's just not been in position to do it. Uh, And yeah, he'll probably be better at some things, but it was even week 18, two days ago. And they've got one timeout left and he uses his final challenge flag on a spotting uh, call, which almost never worked. Granted, I know one worked on Sunday night with the Chargers, but it wasn't a very good decision. That timeout meant the game was over once you lost the challenge, essentially, unless you stopped him, which the team had not done on the last two drives. Uh, those thing, little things like that, again, it helps the big picture because they ended up with just four wins. So they ended up with a third pick. Had they picked up that additional win on Sunday, uh, they would have the fifth pick. Um, we'll find out how much that matters, but um, I don't think it's a huge difference now for next year if Cully is back or not. No offense to him personally. I just don't think he makes that big a difference. But I wouldn't want to run the same play calling out there every week. And if that means you know telling Tim to do things differently, that's fine. It probably means telling Tim to go do things differently somewhere else, though. Uh, and elevating Pep Hamilton, the offensive coordinator position, to me, I think would make a whole lot of sense. He is probably not going to be back next year unless he's at least the offensive coordinator, because I think he'll get hired somewhere else if he's not. Uh, He's been an offensive coordinator at the NFL level, at the college level. He's been a head coach before. He's been an assistant head coach at the NFL level before. And working with Andrew Luck, Justin Herbert, and now Davis Mills uh, has only done more to enhance what I think people feel about him around the league. So uh, if your choices are return with Cully and Kelly and no Hamilton or return with Cully and Hamilton – I think the latter makes a lot more sense. Most of the rest of the coaching staff is uh, Lovey's probably not leaving. You're not changing the offense. I don't believe. So you may change a couple of coaches uh, other than that, but I don't think to any great significance because you're still going to run Lovey's defense if he's here. And you're going to have to make some changes because of all the one-year contract guys uh, that may or not be back. Yeah. And I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you think I've certainly heard a number of times it's intimated that Pep Hamilton would happily take a job and another team if offered and he's obviously been uh, asked to interview for the Carolina OC spot after Joe Brady was released you know mid-season I've seen they've fired a number of their coaches today so they're looking for a number of changes changes there and, you, and it's a time of change but as you said there's a number of teams out there that are all looking for a head coach some are GM um, but there, there's a number of teams that are looking to 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 make a change so you know, you never know what's going to happen in a year, but um, in terms of in terms of having the draft picks potentially, um, but at the time of hiring, the the candidate won't know that. Do you think the 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 possibility of trading Watson um, is is an, is enough to 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 attract a candidate because they get a blank slate essentially, or or do you think people are too risk averse when they're taking a job they might never get another chance at? 
Yeah, that last part is why most guys say yes. Uh, it's hard to pass up on an NFL job. It was impossible for David Cully to do it. Never know when it's going to come again, if it's going to come again. Uh, even though a lot of these coaches are kind of in that we're getting our first job, most of these guys, if they're hired, that are out there are not repeat guys. Dan Quinn is one, but I don't think they'll request or get an opportunity to interview him, even if they do fire uh, Coach Cully. But most of the other guys are trying to, to come in for the first time. Uh, it, it stands to reason. I would say the chances are pretty good that this team has more than one 2022 first round draft pick because I can't imagine them not moving on from Watson before draft day. I think it should happen, uh, obviously, months before draft day, right as the league year begins. I think it's something that they would want to do. I don't know if they'll have much more on the information side of the legal issues, but either way, I don't know that that makes a huge impact on their, their spot here, because while it does give them draft capital, you're still working in with the same people in the front office. Do you believe in them or not? That's what it comes down to. When you sit down with Casario, Easterby, or whomever else is in the meetings, do you believe in them? I mean, they're going to obviously believe in you if you hire, if they hire you, you would assume, but do you believe in them and what they're doing and how they want to do things? It, you know, for, for some teams, uh, the interview process is, is both sides of the table. And for anybody, if this job were open, their interview should be with the Texans. They should be interviewing them as much as they're getting interviewed. So you know, the offseason obviously is still focused on the same thing it was last year, unfortunately, and that's Watson. Having the extra picks should make you more attractive, but again, only if you believe the person making the selections is going to pick the right guys more often than not. Well, that's it. You could be in a position whereby you get those picks if you don't necessarily hit and transform your roster's complexion in terms of the way it's made up by by guys who can realise their potential at this level then yeah, you know, things could potentially get worse and I think that's a, that's a, that's a fate that's not necessarily um, completely incomprehensible but in terms of the Watson deal Adam, how, where do you see that playing out? Obviously there's been the change in coach uh, in, in Miami um, whether that was, you know, you know, obviously uh, Stephen Ross was very keen on bringing him in, there was, you know, there's I've heard different reports of, of uh, Watson's agent Magaletta being close to close to Brian Flores, he's obviously now out. Um, you've obviously got a change in GM in New York. You've got, you know, definitely an unhappy owner in Carolina. Um, where do you see it playing out? Because it certainly felt yesterday that, and, and Ian Rappaport tweeted this out, it meant that Watson route to, to Miami was less likely. I don't think they're necessarily the partner you want, considering two of the three first-round picks are pinned on the 49ers who have made the playoffs this year. Um, so where, where do you see it end up, or what do you think the ideal kind of scenario was to, to get this concluded, as you said, because it's just hung over this team for far too long now? I mean... It's all predicated, unfortunately, because it's part of his contract on what he says. I mean, they can talk to all these teams with all these picks, but if he doesn't want to play for any of them, it's kind of wasted their time. And sadly, that's the situation they've allowed it to get to because that's part of his contract. I'm sure at the time they didn't think it would be much issue. I can't imagine them ever thinking when they were putting that contract and the language together, they thought, what about when we want to trade him? What about when we want to move on from Watson? Because they never expected to be the ones that wanted to move on from him. But, you know, the Giants, they've got two first-round picks in the top 10. The Jets have two first-round picks in the top 10. Jets just drafted a quarterback. Wouldn't imagine they're interested. The Giants need to move on from their quarterback. They should absolutely be interested. Carolina's got a pick in the top 10. And, you know, this is the, the tough-to-figure part of it. Carolina doesn't have the additional picks. So if you're trading for a 2023 first-round pick, what do you think that is? Do you think that's Carolina's pick – with Watson playing really well for 17 games, thus it's a terrible pick? Or do you think that's Carolina's pick in 2023 with Watson playing in 
eight games, 10 games, six games, because nobody knows what the league is going to do if he tries to play next year. Nobody knows what his legal situation is going to be like next year. And I don't know how you would agree to many contingencies on that. If you're Carolina, you want them all. If you're the Texans, you probably don't uh, want any of them, which I think has been a holdup. So that's the issue with finding the actual correct place for you to try to move him to. Because you really don't know the future of any of those picks. And that's why these teams with additional picks now are the ones that have to make the most sense. But if he doesn't want to go there, it doesn't matter. And it's really only that one team. The Giants really are the only team that makes sense that has two picks or more in this first round. Uh, Philadelphia, I wouldn't imagine, is interested, even though they have three first-round picks all in the mid-teens. But they're obviously moving forward with Jalen Hurts. I would if I were them. I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, but I would hope they would. And I know Detroit has two first-round picks, and I know one's even ahead of Houston's. I'm going to guess Deshaun Watson is not going to accept a trade to Detroit. Well, that's it. Yeah, I think there's a couple, a couple of cities that are probably um, not on the uh, on the glamour list for Watson, and that was always the sort of you know kind of suggested uh, thought process behind the Miami um, preference. But um, in terms of this team, I, I suppose you could list every position on the depth chart. But as they as they go and improve this ro- or try and improve this roster to get it to a space where it's it's a competitive entity again, and people can you know turn up on a Sunday and at least expect a close game at times. And it has been better down the stretch, but certainly early in the season, this team has found wanting. Um, what would you say is the kind of if you were Casario, the cut t- top sort of two or three spots on the roster they really need to invest in, uh, which will probably predominantly be through the draft. Yeah, and it should be in the trenches on both sides. Uh, they were lucky enough to land two players in one offseason that I think made the interior of their defense uh, a thousand times better. Um, the Malik Collins signing was possibly the best signing they made, but I don't know what his future holds. And the drafting of Roy Lopez, especially where they got him, he's been fantastic against the run. He's the, just the type of player you hope to find, uh, not only in the later rounds, even in the earlier rounds. But that interior of the line and the interior of the offensive line, to me, um, depending on what they do with Laramie Tunsil, uh, those nine spots, the five on the O-line and the four on the D-line, they need to be concentrating on making that area better. I think it's a little easier in a, on a one-year off-season plan to find guys to fill in the gaps elsewhere. You mentioned two of those players. Can you find another player like Grugier Hill in a year or keep him? Can you find another player like Tavier Thomas or a player like him? I think that's a little bit more likely that they will be able to do that. Not only that, if you draft a guard or a tackle and that player can play football, well, then he should be there for the next seven to eight years. And that's a problem solved. That's what I think they believed they did when they drafted Titus Howard and Max Sharping together. You drafted two linemen that should take up 40% of your offensive line for the next five to eight years. Max Sharping has obviously not performed at that level. He's been benched every year. He's been out there this year included. And I think they've unintentionally, I guess, uh, ruined the progress of Titus Howard by moving him around all they had. He should have been a tackle for his entire career, whether it was right tackle to start and stay or left tackle because of the absence of Laramie Tunsil. I think they did, did him and the team a huge disservice. And it's always been magnified because if you've seen over the last couple of years, it's a turnstile for both the actual person that's playing either guard position and obviously for their opponents who are running through that interior of the line so much. That's why their running game is awful in addition to their backs. They've got to find some people who can play on the interior line. And that might mean three new guys up front on the interior. And that's where I, if I were them, that's what I would look at. They're going to add receivers. 
They're probably going to add at least one running back from the draft or an undrafted free agency, plus a veteran, because while Rex Burkhead is under contract for next year, he should by absolutely not be the starter next year. Uh, it should be somebody else or at least some sort of rotation. Uh, so they can find the other players this offseason, and then you can focus on some of those things in the future offseasons. On that on that Burkhead extension, I, I tweeted out, and I think it's always the, the best way to kind of gauge value or you know or representation of what that positional value is. And, and the question you probably need to ask yourself is: Would any other team given him three million dollars next year and it feel and signed him at this stage of the process? And I know he may just be a spot filler, and there's not a huge amount of guarantees there. But it kind of reminded me of last year when they gave uh, David Johnson additional guarantees, and it kind of felt like at that point, who else would have done that? Um, and I suppose that feeling of repetition and lack of progress kind of crept in again, albeit before the off-season even started. But what, and I know when you watch the tape from Sunday in a, a couple of games, if you take the, the sort of preconception or potential bias out watching Burkhead, you know, it looks okay out there. Um, um, but certainly as an agent running back, I just thought that was another strange move that they continue to make moves, as you said, that aren't quite like most teams. Yeah, I mean, no, the answer is clearly no. There's no team out there that's going to give him that. He's a 31-year-old running back. Uh, while it seemed, oh, my gosh, this guy just ran for 149 yards, he had a 149-yard game. He had the best game of his career. He was great. And he still basically had the worst season of his career running behind this line. His yards per carry average down this year. You know, the number of times he was handed the ball and he lost yards, it's not even his fault. It's what they do offensively. It's just that he was better than the other guys that were here. Uh, there was no, yeah, there's no reason to go out and do that, but that is what Casario has done repeatedly. Uh, he's one player that they've signed in the last couple of weeks that probably is about a guarantee to make this team, and the money they gave him is guaranteed, so I sure hope he would make the team. Most of the other signings they've made, Dorsett, Derek Rivers, uh, some of the other players like that, it's of no consequence financially. It'll cost Cal McNair some bonus money and some guaranteed money when those guys don't make the team. But if he was paying attention this last offseason, when you signed 50 free agents, they're obviously not going to all make the team. And they all got signing bonuses. And they all got some sort of guarantee. So you're basically just flushing money down the toilet as soon as you put ink to paper. But that doesn't appear to be a problem uh, for the owner. And as long as you can find, find your way through the cap, which any reasonable GM can do, uh, then it isn't of great consequence. Burkhead is a perfectly good player for what you want in a player, what you want in a locker room, what you want in your running back room. He just shouldn't be your starting running back getting 20 touches a game. And, and Tunsil, it kind of seems an odd one, not not really show much interest in trying to come back. Um, whether that's the team telling him just to rest up, we're going to move on, or he's kind of just disinterested in the situation. You can't really blame either. I think there's probably two outcomes. You either extend him because he's on a short-term deal at a high price, um, or you go to trade him. What do you, where do you see the future of that going? You know, with, with some of the proficiency that uh, Titus has shown when he's been at left tackle. I mean, I think they'll be fine at left tackle with either one of those players. I would shudder to think what you know, renegotiation discussions and an extension discussion would be like between Tunsil and uh, the current Texans brass, considering what he already makes. I mean, he's under contract for the next two years. Over the next two years, can you find another tackle? You might have to find two tackles if you don't believe in, Larry, in uh, Titus Howard uh, opposite him. Uh, you probably could. I mean, how much are you going to pay your left tackle? Uh, do you now believe you need to protect your quarterback again this year? This is kind of what they're when they had Deshaun Watson at the beginning of his career. They realized well, we can't run that offensive line out there. We've got too important a player behind them. So they went out and made that trade for Tunsil, which I again at the time, considering where I figured this team was headed, 
I really didn't think it was the worst thing in the world. I think it was terrible they put themselves in that situation. But if you're going to get a tackle of that caliber, that's the price. They probably should have extended him immediately, which they didn't. But they have a good left tackle, and they have a superstar quarterback. That's perfectly fine. That's how you're going to win football games. Just didn't work out that way three years later. Um, I don't think they're going to extend Tunsil. And I'm about 50-50 on whether or not they're going to trade him. Because if you don't trade him, then you should probably have two more seasons of good tackle play. You can pick up the option on Titus Howard's deal if you want. And for a fifth year, you'll pay him good money. But those two guys that tackle should give you the ability to fix the rest of the line. If you care to fix the rest of the line, that's probably the best place to start. Because if Tunsil's not on the team next year, you don't know what any of your line looks like. You've got Titus Howard playing left tackle, I, I guess, or right tackle, neither position which he's ever solidified because he's never been given the chance to, and then four other question marks. That's probably not the way to go. <laughs> and, and in terms of just this arc, arc of this team, Adam, how do you think they, they get back to, um, or when do you think they get back um, to, to being competitive again and making it? Because this season's been tough, um, and you know you take it for granted at times, but how, how long and, and what's it going to take to get back to being a team that's competitive, does it at least have a chance of make, sneaking it into the playoffs? Uh, probably not unless this happens. And you, I might be able to convince you know a few people out of 100 this is reality. Davis Mills, Ryan Tannehill, Trevor Lawrence, and Carson Wentz. Those are the four quarterbacks in this division. Is there much difference between the four of them next year? I mean, we don't even know for sure that Carson Wentz is coming back based on what Frank Reich said, and they can't get out of his contract and they wouldn't be killed by it, probably next year would be smarter. Trevor Lawrence was good in his last game, wasn't particularly good in the games before that. Ryan Tannehill is in a system that wants him to do less in order for them to win more. Now, granted, he's had some good games, and he was clearly fine uh, finding the end zone against the Texans, but if you're really watching, the number of plays he missed is why I think people are wondering, is this really what we want? He's got huge money. They're going to the playoffs. They've been to the playoffs three straight years. But there are probably some people out there I could tell, I could convince that in 2022, the Texans have a as good a quarterback situation as anybody in this division. And if that's the case, can you compete in this division? They don't have enough elsewhere for the answer to be yes yet. They're only, they've been in third place back-to-back years with no talent. That's how awful Jacksonville is. If Indianapolis has continuing quarterback situation uh, issues, even with Jonathan Taylor, Maybe that's an average football team. So all you're trying to do is get to average, and now you're the second-best team in the division. That's still probably not in the 2022 future. Uh, let's see what they do this year in the draft before I answer about 2023. But I would be surprised if they're re- even reasonably competitive uh, for the playoffs beyond finishing 7-10 and 10 and not being eliminated until Week 17 or 18. I don't really think they'll be in the hunt. They might show up on the graphics as in the hunt a little bit later than they did this year, but. I don't really think this looks like a, a team that can be built to make a playoff chase reality uh, over the next two years. Yeah, no, I think anything that last offseason didn't give it, if, if anything can hand, whether it's the coaching staff, um, whether it's just getting some talent, as you said, some jerseys that people might want to wear and show up on a Sunday uh, wearing, then at least we can feel like it takes a, a step forward back to back to some better times. Um, thank you very much, Adam, for your time this week. Much appreciated. Thanks again for coming on this season and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Sounds good. Appreciate you having me.